is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and it's on page 1151 in the Pew Bible so if you want to get that and I think uh, it'll probably be up on the screen as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 to 13. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray by mute idols. Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, in the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptised by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. I'm going to welcome Kimberly up. Glad you could be here with us. We're looking forward to it. I'd just like to pray for you. Father, we thank you that you are, thank you that you are present with us tonight and your spirit is working in our hearts and our lives. We pray that you will speak to us through your servant Kimberly tonight. Lord, may we receive a message from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, thank you. Well, it is good to be here, and isn't it good to be here? I just keep being, like, super excited about that. I think I'm the person in, like, three years' time is going to be saying, oh, my gosh, how good is it not to be in slippers? Uh, and you're like, oh, I was a bit old now, Kim. Uh, I'm hoping I'm still excited about meeting together because we sort of t- took it for granted for a while there, I think, and now we're realising we might have been on to something. Maybe the writer of Hebrews knew what he was talking about. Um, so yes, greetings from the Baptist Union. Um, it's been we've been following as uh, Nick announced is um, that he was moving on, and as a as a support hub, we are 100% like on board with you guys as you go through this um, process, resourcing you however we can, and definitely praying for you because it's a an interesting time of transition and. Um, here to help in whatever way that we can. Our mandate at the Baptist Union Support Hub is all about um, seeing our our local churches flourish. We've got over 250 churches across our state um, that are, you know, 
existing and operating and functioning in all sorts of different ways and places that God's planted them. We just want to see that they would be redeeming that community and that society that they are part of and um, raising disciples and seeing real impact for God's kingdom. The last few days I've actually been, um, well, I've been to a global uh, congress, the, the Baptist thing, and by that I mean I've been sitting on my couch in my pajamas and trackies because it's all weird hours and all that kind of stuff. It was meant to be in Brazil. It's hard not to, you know, push past that and be excited about being in my lounge room. But it was good. I, was, I don't think I would have gone if it was in Brazil. But so that's kind of the way up. But, um, but yes, yeah, so I've been, the, the, the global Baptist community have been meeting for the last um, three or four days in various ways too, which has been exciting to, to see what God's up to further afield than just here in a little old Victoria, um, which has its own challenges and, and, um, and successes and joys and, and things to celebrate, and, but it's good to sort of see that on the, the bigger picture. Now, the last time, there's a few guys here who are participating in our Emerge um, Apprenticeship Pathway at the Baptist Union, and the last time they heard me preach, it was for the purpose of reviewing me. We were doing a lesson on public speaking and they were like watching and then they gave me the feedback. This is not that time, boys, okay? So you don't have to give me a full critique afterwards, all right? This is all it's about. But um, we have had several of your crew be part of things that are happening at the Baptist Union in the Emerging Leader, Developing Leader space. We love to be able to connect and support um, as we are able to do that. So my dad is bald didn't know any other way to segue to that, so we just started there. My dad is bald. Um, there, is, there are a few photos that indicated at some point he had a full head of hair, but I think it was like in his late teens, and he's just basically been bald all, his, all my life, and he kind of did the comb-over thing for a little too long, but he, lo- he lost that, and now he's got this really nice clipped silver ring, and he kind of looks like Sean Connery, but, um, so it's okay, but when we were kids, we used to tease him about being bald because... He was bald and we were kids, so it just had to happen. And he used to quote to us this Bible verse when we would tease him about being bald. And this is like from the actual Bible, guys, from Kings. It says, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy, like that. Um, he turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. <laughs> All right, Dad. All right. Calm down. Just like, tease me, and I'll sick some bears on you. It was a bit harsh, right? But we just, I think we were mostly just shocked that that was le- legit in the Bible, that there was any reference to baldness, let alone to being punished for teasing someone for being bald. But there's actually quite a few sort of random stories and lines and things throughout the Bible that make it very entertaining to read. Like, do you know the story of the guy in Acts who was listening to Paul preach and fell asleep so hard, he fell out a window, three stories down a window. It says in the text that he, he lay there as dead, and then Paul picked him up and said, no, he's not dead, but I don't know, like, if he actually died, and like, I was just like... You're right, dude. He's like, whoa. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I don't know. You've got to train yourself to do that when you wake up. Or the, there's the time that, like, for all parents, this is just beautiful, when Mary and Joseph actually lost Jesus. Like, for a whole day, they didn't know where their own kid was, and it was the Son of God. Like, makes every parent in the world just feel so much better about themselves. It's like, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Haven't lost him for over a day yet. That's good. Um, 
Again, this is the stuff in the Bible, or anything really, anything quotable from the Song of Songs, all right? Well, this is one of my favorite. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Stop it. (laughs) It's like basically he's saying, your teeth aren't furry, and I like that about you. That's pretty much what this is saying. Like, they're like fairy teeth that have been shaved. That's what you've got going there, and I, lo- I love that about you. This is beautiful. Uh, Proverbs 27 is some advice that I think we can all get behind. It says that if you bless someone too loudly early in the morning, it's like a curse. That's relatable, isn't it? We can relate to that. But today we're looking at a story that includes one of my favorite lines in Scripture. I think we should all memorize this line and use it with as much authority as my dad did the bear thing. Um, And it's from the story of Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah. And somebody has asked Nehemiah to come down and help him with something, and he sends back this response. He says, I am carrying on a great work and cannot come down. I'm going to use that. Like, you should use that when your mum's like, come anything. I am carrying on a great work and I cannot come down. Even if you're like finishing your online shopping thing or something. Like, just say it. It doesn't even have to be a great work. I am carrying on a great work and I cannot come down. It turns out, though, Nehemiah was carrying on an actual great work. So it's probably a little bit applicable there to him. But I want to have a quick look at this story of Nehemiah as a way of setting up our topic Um, for our time together tonight. And Nehemiah, if you are unfamiliar, and even if you just need a refresh, is a great story in the big story of God's people. And in terms of timeline, it happens around 445 BC. And so just to sort of plot it with the other big Bible stories, it's sort of, this is after the exile that saw the Jewish people um, dispersed across the empire. So that's like Daniel the lion's den kind of stories, right? And then we um, move into the story of Esther, or under the, because under the rule of King Xerxes, the Jews had been given release to return to Jerusalem. That's the whole kind of Esther story. And had a degree of protection under that edict that actually allowed them to, to prosper wherever they were living. So it's a really great time of living for the Jews. And then we fast forward a little bit, and it's now King Artaxerxes who's on the throne. That's the son of Xerxes. And it's in his courts and his kingdom that the character of Nehemiah is introduced and he's serving as a cupbearer and he is a Jew. And the too long didn't read version of the story of Nehemiah is that God selects him to lead the project to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. While all the Jews were scattered in, um, in exile, the city of Jerusalem and its people did not fare very well. Uh, the text used words like trouble and disgrace In fact, the the wall around the city had crumbled and was breaking down, and all the wooden gates at various points had been burned, so no protection there. And as I mentioned, Nehemiah is living and working under King Artaxerxes in Persia, and he hears this news, and he is devastated. text tells us he weeps, and he goes into a a time of deep mourning. Jerusalem was in ruins. The, The walls and the gates were in physical devastation, and the people were in disgrace. And you have to remember the the significance of Jerusalem to the Jews in ancient times. And it's in fact what carries on the significance for Jews even now. It served as a a physical representation of God, his activity and particularly his favour towards the Israelites. 
It held the temple, and this was the place where communion with God through ritual and priests and physical space and religious ceremony could be experienced. But it also held the Ark of the Covenant, which um, was symbolic of the very presence of God. Within the walls of Jerusalem, God's people were meant to live out God's laws and together work to show what God's humanity might, or his plans for humanity might actually look like. Thriving in community, caring for for each other, serving each other, uh, trading in produce and skills to be a flourishing people, working for each other's best and pooling resources to be something of a powerhouse in the region. And physically, Jerusalem is located on top of a hill. No matter where you are coming from, you have to go up to Jerusalem. And festivals like the one that was actually instituted by the the story or the celebration of the freedom for Jews that Esther um, was instrumental in negotiating that, the Feast of Purim or the Festival of Lights, would have the city literally glowing on top of the hill and people could see it from miles around. So it's a big deal. The first few chapters of of Nehemiah record the exchange and the full story of how all this plays out, and I definitely encourage you to read that. Some great leadership lessons, some great faith lessons in there, and how this all came to be. But cutting to the part of the story that I want us to focus on tonight, Nehemiah is released to go to Jerusalem and to... um, to build the, rebuild the walls, rebuild the city. And Artaxerxes throws all of his influence and resource behind that. And Nehemiah gets clear passage and has all the supplies that he needs to do it. And so in the start of chapter 3, the work of rebuilding begins. Let's read from verse 1. It says, Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the 100, which they dedicated, and then as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining sections, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimuth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. Now, I mostly just read that out to impress you with all of my pronunciations of the cities and the names. No, here's my hot tip, though. Just say it once, say it confidently, and keep going. Never go back. But the rest of the chapter goes on in a very similar vein, just listing out this person and the people from this place. They worked on this place from here and to here. And while for the most part, it seems like that level of detail might be irrelevant because we don't know the people or the places or the things that they're talking about, it's um, there's, you know, not going to be a test on that afterwards. But it's there to build a significant case, to paint a very specific and quite an intricate picture because... What we can note from this narrative is that, firstly, it's a very large job. There was a lot of work required. Here's a picture of the wall of Jerusalem. How grateful are we for drones and aerial shots? No kidding. It's a, it's a picture that's been drawn. Um, but if you go through the chapter 3 there, and um, you can see all of the names of those places are... Um, are named in the text, the sections of the wall between those landmarks and and you kind of get a sense of how big each person's job was and the tasks that they undertook. Um, and it's a really big job anyway you look at it. I mean, it's a big physical job. The wall around Jerusalem is thought to be around four kilometres long and 12 metres high. So massive. 
And it's quite a large logistical job, if you think about it. There's no Bunnings around the corner just duck out and grab supplies. Like, this is a lot of materials, a lot of coordinating that has to take place. A huge management job. Lots of teams and individuals and no unions to oversee their work conditions and no kind of emails daily clarifying everybody's tasks and site inductions and all the things that keep it going. Keeping everyone on track together would have been an amazing feat. And it only took 52 days. 52 days. I I just renovated my bathroom and it took me, like not me, as in I did nothing, I paid. But the bathroom was renovated and took longer than 52 days. Anyone here who's in a building kind of um, role, you know that 52-day project is a massive effort for something this large with so many people involved in undertaking it. The second thing that we learn from this very detailed account, though, is pointing us to observe that it took everyone to get the job done. It was an all-hands-on-deck Kind of job. You read through chapter three there and you'll see goldsmiths, jewellery makers, perfume makers, there's rulers and there's residents, there's priests and there's temple servants, people of varied social standing, everybody working side by side. It even mentions daughters. And I say that because the reality of our biblical records is that women are rarely noted in scripture, even though we know that they are present, particularly when it comes to head counts. I mean, you think feeding the 5,000, that's 5,000 men. And they say, and there were women and children. Didn't, they're not counted, even though we know they're present. So there's a, very, there's a few times throughout scripture where the women are noted or are mentioned. And so I think we need to feel the emphasis of that. It's like to say, literally, everyone was helping even the women, right? Like everybody was involved here. So if you continue reading, you'll see how the project proceeds. They face opposition from other people and Nehemiah's strength of leadership is key to how the people respond to that. And the celebration of the conclusion of the project is had. But as the book goes on, we see that the rebuilding of the walls was just a precursor and even maybe an allegory of the work of rebuilding that God intended to do with his people and in preparation for something um, highly symbolic in rebuilding the actual temple. In chapter 4, it says the wall was built for the people worked with all their heart. So for us today, I feel like God would have us see and hear the lessons of Nehemiah as it continued to play out in God's people for the years that followed, and and also into the early church, and then reverberating through church history to us today, that to build something of kingdom scale, of kingdom impact, of kingdom significance, like God is in the business of building, it takes everyone to play their part, everyone to join God in the work of advancing the kingdom, to being ministers of the gospel, um, to be those who would live in such a way as to represent and reflect God in all his glory. You know, for Q Baptist, for our Baptist movement, for all of our churches and our um, Christians to to be impacting, you know, the community that we're positioned in, um, to be a flourishing, thriving, welcoming, creative, loving, inclusive community for every person that would come through the doors of any church or, or um, faith space, to build something of kingdom scale requires every single one of you to step into the part God is asking you to play, to be the jewelry maker or the priest or the daughter or a servant that joins in, what, in with what God has given you to contribute that 
to a bigger picture of what he is doing with and for and through us. It requires all of us, all of us, even the women, all of us. So hear the invitation that comes to each of us tonight. We, we get to be part of what God is building. How exciting is that? Like he actually includes us in what he's up to. Incredible opportunity, incredible privilege that we wouldn't want to miss. In Peter 4.10, 1 Peter 4.10, it says that each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various form. And straight away, some of you will read that and think, whatever gift you've received, oh, I haven't received a gift, I don't know what mine is, nothing useful anyone, anyway, or not one that I see that others have. Or here's an alternative translation, which I think helps. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. God has given you each a gift from his great variety And it's my firm conviction from Scripture that each of us is not only invited just to be unskilled labour on the wall building project, like all hands on deck, just jump in, but that we've also each been given specific gifts that equip us for specific service and playing a very specific role in the kingdom activity of God. In Ephesians 4, it says that Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Each one uniquely endowed with gifting to equip his people so that the body of Christ, his church, would be built up and that through this mutual sharing of gifts and serving together and sowing into one another, we would collectively attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Or to use the Nehemiah analogy, if any of us fails to bring our gifts, where, you know, to offer our contribution or to join in, we'll be building a wall with holes in it. There'll be a missing piece. Not only is there an invitation there then for us to participate, but we each have this unique offering to bring. Your gift is required, regardless of how grand or small you might consider it to be. Despite the limitations you might feel due to life stage or Christian maturity or other restrictive factors, despite what it might look like in terms of the number of other people who already seem to have that gift or they're actively engaged in it and doing so at a high level or um, of competency and capacity. God has given each of you a gift on purpose, for a purpose, and we, all of the we, are missing something if your part is not being played. So when it comes to spiritual gifts, we heard from the earlier reading that one of the central passages is, you know, there is where we get our understanding. And I love Paul's line there about not being ignorant or uninformed about them. We should actually want to know more. So if you're sitting there right now kind of going, spiritual gifts, I don't even know what that means. Excellent. You're at the, the right place to, to be inquiring and to not be uninformed or ignorant anymore. In Galatians, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about those things that demonstrate themselves in our lives as evidence of the Spirit at work in us. You could do a test and see if you know them. 
but I'll just say that they love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I only looked twice at my notes when I said that, so I might know some of them. Both the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, they are both supernatural. They are, neither of them exist within us without God, with God's, without God's power at work in us to make them happen. So the main distinct, distinction, though, between the two, between the fruit and the, the gifts, is that the fruit of the Spirit empower us to be like Jesus, and the gifts of the Spirit empower us to do the things that Jesus did. So here is a list of the gifts. There are a few places in Scripture where gifts are listed, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians. This is kind of a bringing together of those. Different translations will utilize different words, have a slightly different emphasis. But the thing we have to remember is that the spiritual gifts are gifts. Okay, They are gifts given by God for his purpose and at his choosing. Now, God doesn't like have this list on his desk and it's like, oh, Mark, look, which one of these will I give to him? Like, this is not his Christmas shopping list. This is a list that we've created in trying to understand some of the ways that he empowers his people. Um, but the thing is that all of the gifts that he gives to us, he, he knows what we need to do and what he's asking us to do. And the only thing that it is limited by is the creativity and the power and the love of God which is unlimited, right? So there is, there's not a list we could write that would encapsulate everything that God is able, capable, willing, or going to give us. So it's important not to get too hung up on the words or the lists or the labels. In fact, sometimes it can be really unhelpful. <laughs> like to say that someone has the gift of teaching can make it sound like there is this one gift that's packaged in this certain way, and therefore anyone who has the gift of teaching might look, act, serve, the same way as that, you know, that that is the teaching gift, and then that is the shepherd gift, and that is the, and we, we sort of can make them a little bit too tightly condensed or described or prescribed. So I think it's more accurate to say that there are gifts of, so gifts of teaching, it's a really hard word to say properly, gifts, gifts of teaching. So there's a whole sort of package of gifts of teaching, a whole swag of different supernatural empowerments that allow a variety of people to teach in all sorts of circumstances for all sorts of purposes. So it's sometimes unhelpful, the, the language, the label, the naming, the seeking to understand in that context. But it can also be really helpful to get a bit of understanding of those things and how gifts of God have been appointed to us. It can be helpful to have names and, and a little bit of, of structure and, and idea around it. It can be empowering to identify the way God has uniquely and supernaturally enabled us to serve in his kingdom. My sister-in-law, Kylie, is just the classic example of this. She's married to one of my older brothers, and he's a bit similar to me in terms of, you know, does a lot of the upfront kind of stuff. He's a teacher, he's worship leading, speaking, all those sorts of things. And she would avoid all of those things at all costs. Can I get an amen from anybody? No, because you don't want to talk out loud in public. I get it, right? So there's some people for whom the idea of that is just terrifying. She's one of those. And, um, but if you ask her, she would have said, oh, I can't do any of that stuff. I just do the behind the scenes things. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say that or you maybe said that yourself. I just help out. I just cook or I just clean or I just do administration or I just talk one-on-one -on -one with people. 
or I just pray. And she was almost apologetic <laughs> that she couldn't do the things that he did because then she could be more helpful, right? If she could be helpful like him, if she could be more like him. Well, as a church, um, the group of them did one of those courses that help you discover something more about your gifts. And she identified as having the gifts of serving and helping. And it totally shifted something for her. She hadn't even realized those things were on any list. Like, you know, there there was a name for those things. And she certainly wasn't embracing that as being supernatural, But once she did, look out, she's in charge now. She's like, I'm doing the cooking, get out of the kitchen. She's like, I'll be cleaning up here. You go out and talk to the people and do the thing with the microphone. I'll be back here just doing my stuff. She got like a bit assertive about it. But also, it just totally shifted her perspective because she recognized that not only was it okay that she didn't have the same gifts as my brother, but also that he couldn't do what he was doing without people like her releasing him from tasks that would otherwise prevent him from being focused on his his own unique offering. There's a beautiful synergy around how God does this, that we, none of us have a just gift. Just, I just, all of them are as essential as each other. We literally all need each other. Like, You need me to preach this message to you and I need you to do pretty much everything else because this is what I do, Together, we make a whole wall. Together, we make sure nothing is missed. Together, we look more like the fullness of Jesus Christ on the earth. Together, we reach everyone. Together, we are forced to rely on each other and lean into one another's strengths because that's exactly how God designed us to function. So two points that I want us to remember as I finish. The first is that not all the places where you would engage your gifting in kingdom service, here at Pew or any other place that you're called, have a title or a position description attached to them. If your gifts are in the areas of intercession or hospitality or mercy or administration or leadership or apostleship or faith or wisdom or discernment or prophecy or evangelism, that's not necessarily a position you'll see on a roster that needs to be filled. You know, the little box that says evangelist. Oh, I'll do that job, right? Sign up here. It's not necessarily how it works. We're talking about an openness to offering those things into whatever spaces God might lead you into. All hands on deck. You know, we're building a big kingdom thing here. Your contribution is required. And so how, as you seek to understand how God has uniquely gifted you for your party mission, be careful not to be so fixated on finding a specific role or a specific title to tell you who you are and what you offer. But be confident in it and bring it into whatever space you are called. The way God has gifted you will interact with your personality. It will be influenced by your life stage, your qualifications, your experiences, your passions, your circumstances, and it will lead you in what you see and it will lead you in how you respond. You know how people do that thing where like they just assume everybody else saw what I saw or feels what I feel or knows what I know. Like did we not all see what happened there? I don't know what happened there. That natural sense is because as God empowers you, it feels natural because you're walking in exactly the shape and the fitting that he has called you to walk in. 
ultimately, it'll position you to engage with the world and his church just how Jesus is desiring that you would. And here's the kicker. Beyond what it means to be obedient stewards of those things that God's entrusted us with, let me appeal just to your innate desire for personal reward. You know, the wiffum, what's in it for me? Let me tell you what's in it for you. It's kind of simple, but it is profoundly life-impacting. And if you can get this right, the younger, the sooner you can grasp this, it will change your life. 100% money back guaranteed, Mark will pay you if it doesn't work. Um, Microphone, power. There is no greater place to be than in the will and purposes of God. There is no greater place to be than in the will and purposes of God for your life. So when you are doing what you are designed to do, there is such joy and such freedom and incredible purpose and fulfillment. Those of you who have experienced that can testify to it, I'm sure. And you also know when you see it in someone else. You know when you see someone, you're like, man, he was born to do that. She was, this is just the perfect fit for her. She's doing exactly what she's created to do. You know when you see that in people? And some of you, I pray, have had the experience of feeling that and knowing that, even in its smallest measure for yourself. But that is what we should be seeking, to be living, acting, moving, responding exactly in the will and purposes of God and how he has designed and created you to experience life on the earth and what part he is asking you to play in his big kingdom story. It is so worth pursuing. I cannot tell you enough how worthwhile that process is. So if you are someone who at this point, it's, I have never even thought about what my spiritual gifts are. Start thinking about it. Start reading. Start with those, the list. Start, with, start somewhere. Start a conversation with somebody. Or if you are somebody who has already started to kind of move in that place of, I don't know, and maybe, and keep pursuing that. Keep checking that. Lean into trusted counsel. Ask others to help you discern the mind of Christ in this. Ask others to help you navigate this. And it's not so that you can say, oh, good, I'm a preacher. I never have to sweep the floor again. Like, it's not so you can sort of go, excellent. I was hoping they would not be out. Uh, sorry, no, I am, my gift is encouragement. You'll have to ask somebody else to pray for you. You know, like, you don't get to do that, right? It's not to limit you, but it's to empower and expand you to be walking in the fullness of your natural and supernatural gifting and capacity so that you would be able to be most effective in the hands of God to be part of his mission and ministry. We're going to pull up the, that passage, for, part of the passage from 1 Corinthians 12, and I actually want to pray us through this. So if you want to stand with me just to shift your posture a little bit, and you can kind of read along or listen along or whatever, but I just was, as I was reading this text again, just thinking this is how This is not just a statement of who God is and what he does, but it's also a prompt for us in terms of how we might respond to this, what he wants to do with it. So let me pray. God, you are incredibly creative, powerful, generous, and kind. You give incredible gifts. Thank you that your spirit gives different gifts to each of us according to your heart and your intention. We are grateful to be invited to serve you and alongside you as you shape and enable us. God, we celebrate you at work in such diverse and amazing ways through the people we see around us. And we commit to submitting our gifts and capacity and time and selves to your cause, which will always be for the common good. 
Lord, where we require wisdom, grant us your wisdom by the gift of your spirit. Give us knowledge that is beyond our human capacity to know. Impart in us faith to believe for the future you know and see. Grant your power of healing in the bodies, hearts and minds of a broken and needy world. Reveal your word and your truth to us by your spirit. Let us expect and experience the supernatural. Let us speak the words you give us. Empower us to discernment. God, as we open our hearts and our souls to a fresh feeling of your spirit, would you find us ready, willing and obedient to respond to the work you would seek to do through us? Thank you, God, that you know exactly what we need and that you will see to it that we are fully equipped for every opportunity you lead us into. We are grateful to be invited to participate in your mission and ministry. Thank you for including us. Amen. Can you